Two millennia ago, the lives of three kings intersected on a hill in Rome. A king makes a decree, one small move of his hand, and a little family halfway across the world begins to move in the night back to the city to be taxed. The lady on the beast of burden is carrying the king inside her body. Not long after, as that one who was born a king begins to learn to walk, another king in Judea sets out a genocide in order to remove any threat to his power, holding on for dear worth to that which he values most, control. Meanwhile, the real king, the one they will later crown with thorns, is busy divesting himself of his power, his position, his regality to offer us a pathway to salvation. As they nailed on his cross of curse of sin, the placard, Hail King of the Jews, the real royalty was revealed. One day, friend, we're going to crown him with many crowns. Let's talk about it. Thank you for joining us at Arlington. Philippians chapter 2, reading verses 5 through 11. Philippians 2, 5 through 11. Let this mind be in you, which was also in Christ Jesus, who being in the form of God, thought it not robbery to be equal with God. Another translation says, he did not think or esteem divinity as something to be grasped at. But he made himself of no reputation, and took upon him the form of a servant, was made in the likeness of men. Being found fashioned as a man, he humbled himself and became obedient unto the death, even the death of the cross. And this hymn is one that has a parallel structure where everything goes down to the cross. And then glory of this hymn starts to build up and show you the glory of God, as it says, wherefore God also has highly exalted him and given him a name which is above every name, that at the name of Jesus, every knee should bow of things in heaven, things in earth, and things under the earth. Every principality, every power, good and evil, everything has to bow to Jesus Verse 11, that every tongue should confess that Jesus Christ is Lord to the glory of God the Father. May I tell you today that you are going to confess that Jesus Christ is Lord. And it will bring God glory. You will. You may choose to now, or it will be chosen for you in the future. But every tongue ever born will confess that Jesus Christ is Lord. I want to glorify him now. I want to glorify him now. Why don't we do that together? Why don't we confess that Jesus is Lord? Today, a tale of three kings. A tale of three kings. Let's, let's, let's adore him together. Thank you, Jesus, for who you are. Thank you for your presence that we feel. In this room right now, we feel your manifest presence. And 
I pray that those that are accessing this material through electronic means will also feel your presence. God, we glorify you. We confess you today as Lord. We magnify you today. And we ask for your manifest presence to do your work among us in the name of Jesus, in the name of Jesus. Today, from Philippians chapter 2, we find a hymn of the glory of Jesus Christ, a tale of three kings. Everybody's aware of what season it is. Hope you're aware. If you don't know, Brother Kelly wore green and Sister Ann wore red today, so they got the red and green on to remind you that it's Christmas time. It's Christmas time. I want to read to you just a little bit about three kings who factor into our story today. Luke chapter 2, the famous narrative of Jesus' birth. Luke chapter 2, verse 1 says, It came to pass in those days that there went out a decree from Caesar Augustus that all the world should be taxed. Does it shock you, Jim, that someone in government was interested in taxation? That's probably not going to knock you off your seat today. And after this decree goes forth, this taxing was first made when Cyrenius was governor of Syria. All went to be taxed, everyone into his own city. And Joseph also went up from Galilee, out of the city of Nazareth, under Judea, unto the city of David, which is called Bethlehem, because he was of the house and lineage of David, to be taxed with Mary, his espoused wife, and she was great with child. Here's this little family. Picture it. They're living in a little town called Nazareth. Minding their own business, Scott. But they get the decree. If you get that letter, now I know because everybody calls me Clay, if they're, if they're being polite. But if I get a letter addressed to William, it's either junk mail or it's really important. And so if I get one of those letters that says William Jackson, and it has three initials in the upper left-hand corner, I-R-S, pay attention. This little family, they're living in, in Nazareth, and they get the decree, and I don't, I guess it didn't come by post. I guess it was nailed up somewhere publicly in town, or maybe criers came through and announced and everything. But somehow, the Roman government got out the word, you've got to be taxed. And in those days, now, you know, you turn on the radio, and about every third commercial is, if you've got tax problems, call this lawyer, and there's napkin and everything. In those days, if you got crossways with the Roman government, you could just be thrown into jail. Or you could lose your property and there, there was no recourse. They didn't have a way to, to go to court, as it were, and adjudicate it. They just, they had to do what was said. In Rome, on the other side of the world, Augustus, he's born Octavian. He's 63 years old at this time that Jesus is in Mary's womb. He decrees and he's saying, I want a tax to be performed. He's already cemented a legacy as one of the most successful leaders politically in human history. Augustus is the first Roman emperor. What we know is the Roman Empire has been brought under his leadership, and he's the first one. He's made a public police force. He's made a public firefighting service. He has organized the military, and he's brought on a military peace that actually will last about 200 years. Pretty good record. We don't have any president that's put on 200 years. He, you like Mr. Washington, or you like Mr. Lincoln, or Mr. Kennedy, Mr. Roosevelt, whoever you pick, nobody has that legacy of 200 years of peace. Military victories, civic achievements that laid the course of the great Roman Empire result of his charisma and command. History said he was well-liked, Candace, because he was, he was such a, a great leader, as it were. He represents the height of human governance. Money, 
might, power, and control. And from his room in Rome, he makes one little pin stroke halfway across the world. A little family goes out on a cold night. Lady on a donkey. Nearly bursting with pregnancy. And yet they've got to go because this man had so much power that when he spoke or when he wrote, a little family halfway across the world has got to move. That's power. That's power. But there's a difference in power and authority. Augustus is our first king that we examine. And he, in some ways, moves the narrative of Jesus' birth forward. Because Aaron, it's his decree that leads Jesus in utero out of Nazareth into Bethlehem. But look at the way God works. It had been prophesied by Micah in chapter 5, verse 2, that out of Bethlehem would come the Messiah. And Brother Jim, Jesus' family resided in Nazareth. But all the way across the world in Rome, a king, an emperor, makes a decree. And he believes that he needs more taxes. He believes that he needs more money. He believes that he needs more gold and more silver. And so he believes that he's acting, Candace, with his own political will to make something happen. But a prophecy from centuries before is being fulfilled as our sovereign God shows that Jesus is the Lord. Let me tell you something today. Men rise and men fall. Women are famous and then women are not famous. People have power and then they don't have power. But there's one king who reigns supreme forever. And his name is not Biden or Trump or Merkel or Blair or Johnson or any, any, any of these political names. His name, you know it, it is Jesus. Here's where our second king enters the story. Jesus comes into Bethlehem. He's born and he goes back to his, his house of residence. And then in Matthew chapter 2, the second chapter of Matthew, the narrative continues. It's two to three years later here in Matthew chapter 2. And there's a second king who enters the story. When Jesus was born in Bethlehem of Judea, in the days of Herod the king, behold, there came wise men from the east to Jerusalem. They came to Jerusalem and they said, where is he that's born king? Now think about that. Where is he who's born? Who else in history was born as a king? Right there, you know these guys are smarter than the guy they were talking to. Who's he that's born king of the Jews? For we have seen his star in the east, and we are come to worship him. Herod the king heard these things. He was troubled, and all Jerusalem with him. Because in these days, in these days, Preston, if you lifted your fist at Rome, your fist got cut off. If you lifted your voice at Rome, you wouldn't be talking tomorrow. If you lifted in rebellion against Rome, they would put you on a pike and impale you. They would, they would crucify your children and your wife. They would, they, would, they would level you because the amount of authority and power that they thought that they exercised was so great. All Jerusalem was troubled because when people start talking about another king, Rome gets nervous. And when Rome gets nervous, families die. They were troubled, Jim. They weren't troubled like Facebook where somebody's saying, I don't like the Democrats, and somebody's saying, I don't like Republicans. This was a life-threatening emergency if rebellion came against the power of Rome. They said to him, he's born in Bethlehem of Judea, for it's written by the prophet, you Bethlehem in the land of Judea, you're not the least of the princes of Judah. And so this prophecy in Micah came to pass 
It's going to be a governor and he'll rule your people Israel. Herod, when he had privately called the wise men, inquired of them diligently at what time the star appeared. He wanted to get more information about this third king. We've got Augustus in Rome. We've got Herod in Jerusalem. And he sent them to Bethlehem. He said, go and search diligently for the young child. And when you found him, look at how politics works. You come back and let me know. Because, air quotes here, I want to worship him. Now, Herod's idea of worship was very different than your idea of lifting up Jesus. Herod wanted to eliminate Jesus because he was so power hungry and so thirsty to hold on to his own little fiefdom. This little puppet king that Rome told exactly what to do, exactly how to do it, and how when to do it. He thought that if he could keep Jesus from growing up, he could keep his little kingdom going. You see, Herod was playing both ends of the game. He, he wanted to keep Rome happy, but he wanted to keep Jerusalem happy too. He built the temple and aggrandized it and, 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 and furbished it and made it so beautiful with gold and adornments. But Rebecca, the reason he did that was to have his own name remembered. He built all kinds of monuments because he wanted to be remembered beyond his death. Herod was obsessed with his own reputation. Jim, it got so bad that when he got sick, he got sick this very year that Jesus was born. History tells us that he knew he was going to die and he called prominent people into Jericho and ordered that on when he died, all those people to be murdered. Why, Sheila? Because he wanted the whole city to be mourning at the time of his death. And he was afraid nobody else would mourn him. So, Brother Mark, he was so vain that he wanted to kill all these people in order that people would be sorry at the time of his death. How bizarre is that? Does it make sense to you now that he ordered the innocents to be slaughtered? That he said, all these babies that were born, all the male babies, I want you to kill them because I don't want Jesus to grow up. You think, well, that story doesn't make sense. That story can't be true. History tells us, history tells us that Herod had his own son executed because the Roman authority did not like something that he did against the Roman military. He was willing to destroy his own family to hold on to his power. And before you judge him, there are many that have sacrificed the peace of their family for much less because they were unwilling to bow before the real king. Caesar moves his pen and a family goes out in the night to be taxed. Herod gives his decree and families moan and lament because of the injustice that's done to them. Two kings holding on to fake power. Herod has a concern for his own fame. Augustine has, Augustus has his concern for the fame of Rome. And yet, there is another king to be talked about. Augustus arrogates to himself to be a fake divinity. You know what they call the Roman emperors? The sons of God. You see, when Jesus was called by his disciples the son of God, it wasn't just a statement that they recognized his divinity. It was a direct pledge of loyalty, not to the fake king, but to the real king. When they confessed that he was the son of God, they were saying the culture around us recognizes one kind of power, but we recognize the real source of authority in the universe, and his name is Jesus. Herod tried to prevent himself as a representative of the real divinity. Look, I, I, I built the temple up and I, I did great things. I, I'm, I'm a religious man. Look at me, look at me, look at me, look at me. It, does that make sense? <laughs> I'm a spiritual person. Look at me. Anytime you 
hear those two things coming out of somebody's mouth, something's not right. They've got an integrity issue when they're saying that they're so spiritual, but they want the ones they want to be the ones to get the fame and the ones to get the glory. Augustus inherited the pretenders. The metal on their heads rings true, but the hollowness in their hearts reveals them to be false kings. They've got power, but they don't have authority. They, 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 they've got might, but they don't have mercy. They, they've got rule, but they don't have righteousness. Death came to Augustus Caesar to end his reign. 19th of August, AD 14, two years after Jesus recited the law and the prophets in the temple, Augustus died. And another emperor took over and another and another and another until finally Nero at the end of the New Testament period. Death came to Herod to end his reign. The very year that he tried to have Jesus killed, Herod died. And another took his place. Not his biologic son. He had already had him executed. But death came to end the reign of Herod. Because these men had made a deal with death through their sin. So did you. So did I. Romans 6 and 23 says, The wages of sin is death. I don't care how much money you accumulate. I don't care what your 401k looks like. I don't care what kind of house you have. I don't care what kind of car you drive. I don't care how many likes you have on Facebook or how many friends that follow you. I don't care how many people, I don't care how much uh, you think you're so attractive or how intelligent you are, how many degrees you have. There is a deal that we have all made with death and it is called sin. And we are earning death through our commitment to unrighteousness. But there is a pathway forward that Christ has offered because of his righteousness. And there's a way to get out of that deal with death. I don't know if Augustus took it. I don't know if Herod took it. But I know today that you and I have an opportunity to make a deal with a real king to avoid death. Death came to Augustus. Death came to Herod. But death didn't come to Jesus. Jesus came to death. Because Herod and Augustus tried to avoid it, but Jesus made an appointment with it. Because death came to end Augustus, and death came to end Herod because they were the fake kings. But Jesus came to end death. Jesus came with His righteousness to end the rule of death, hell, and the grave. A proud, mighty representative of Tiberius Caesar stood at the foot of my Jesus cross and he made a statement that is divine truth, but it was political treason. While Jesus hung there with his crown of thorns, not a crown of gold, not a crown of silver, but a crown of thorns, that soldier looked up and he saw and he said, surely this, not Caesar on his throne, but surely this was the Son of God. This is real divinity. This is real kingship. This is real authority. And I stand here flat footed before you today and I say that I say the same pledge my culture doesn't offer real power my culture doesn't offer real peace real power and real peace comes through the real king and his name is Jesus his name is Jesus his name is Jesus Within three decades of that profound announcement by that soldier, this was the Son of God. The kingdom of the real king will have completely turned the world of Augustus and Herod upside down. Jim, within three decades, every one of Rome's slaves will have heard that they have a birthright of freedom as children of the living God who bear his image. The world would never 
be the same. Within three decades, every one of the widows and orphans neglected and abused by Roman society would have learned of a community who took on their care as a sacred obligation and it made its way in the New Testament text. You take care of those who are despised because I place them at the dead center of my kingdom. I'm talking about a different way of rule. I'm talking about a different way of power because Mary, we serve the real king, not the king with a paper crown, but the king with the real crown that will last through all eternity. So-called barbarians who did not have the stamp of Roman citizenship that afforded them the privileges of basic common decency have heard that they too have an opportunity to be part of a greater kingdom than Rome that would never die. An eternal kingdom, a valuable kingdom because Jesus said, whosoever will. Peter said, the call comes to as many as the Lord our God calls. You don't need a certain ethnicity. You don't need a certain gender. You don't need a certain background. You don't need a certain education to be part of this kingdom because my king, the real king, throws the doors wide open and he says, if you will believe, if you will obey, if you will step into my covenant, I will receive you unto myself. Every woman who had been despised as little more than property or a plaything by the men of Rome will have heard that the miracle of the gospel, it was a woman that God chose to bring his own image into the world. And it was women that he entrusted to bring the message of his resurrection to humanity. There was no system in the ancient Near East that elevated women to such a high place as the Christian gospel because this real king changes everything. Because in the beginning, he made them male and female and he valued them equally and he loved them equally and he wanted both of them to have a place in his kingdom. Every so-called ruler of the empire of man will have heard that the pathway to greatness lies not in the power to rule but in the authority to serve. The real king and the real kingdom had come to turn the value system of the world completely upside down. And you and I are inheritors of that heritage. We are citizens of the true kingdom. Paul's going to be writing letters three decades later, right under Nero's nose in Rome. Right under Nero's nose. You read it, the last two verses of the book of Acts. He is openly declaring that Jesus is king. And they can't stop him. Candace, it says that no one hindered him. He was in his own hired house. They put him in chains. And yet... They had to keep changing the soldiers, history says, because he would convert those that they left with him too long. He was too dangerous. He's like Brother Jim. He got sick and had to go down to the VA emergency department. And, and he had to wait a while, so he just started preaching. And before you know, everybody was hearing Brother Young preach. You give him a blood clot, the man turns into a preacher. You send him to the, to the VA, and he just starts converting people. This is the kind of God that we serve. This is the kind of kingdom that we're in. You can't keep a Christian down because he has a life, and she has a life of resurrection in him or her. The real Son of God is not Caesar. It is Christ. The real king has the real crown. It's none other than our Savior, our Lord, our Master, and his name is Jesus of Nazareth. This king is different. His rule is not like the worldly kings because his character is not like the character of earthly kings. He is, thank you, Brother Mosier, not a king who takes, but he is the king who gives. He's not the king who taxes. He's the king who blesses and overflowing. He's not the king that says, give me this and give me that. He's the king that says, I give you abundantly, pressed down, shaken together, running over. He's the king who blesses. See him there on the cross. 
View His crown, not of molten gold, not of beaten silver, but of plaited thorns pressed into His noble brow so that even more of His precious blood will flow down His pain-stricken, sweat-stained face, contorting in the agony of giving everything to us, His disloyal subjects, His unprofitable servants, His wayward sons, His imperfect daughters. This giving King who opens up His side opens it up and blood and water flows so that out of Him could flow a people and a holy nation of true citizens, of the true kingdom, of the true king. I'm so thankful today. I don't know how to express it, but I'm so thankful that I stand today redeemed by the blood of one who never knew sin, by the blood of one who is worthy of all adulation and all praise. He is the true king. He gives not in the name of power, but He gives in the name of love. He reigns not in the name of privilege, but He reigns in the name of redemption and reconciliation. He rules today not in the name of Rome and not even the name of Jerusalem, but in the name of Jesus, the matchless name. The name that is above every other name. The only name given among men whereby we must be saved. The name every demon shakes at. The name that every principality bows to. The name that we will all confess is Lord. The name of Jesus, the true and the righteous King. I stand here today and I pledge allegiance. I pledge many times as a school child of the pledge allegiance to the flag. But today, I want to take a higher pledge. I pledge my life, my loyalty, and my love to the one true king. I pledge my allegiance to the one with the thorns. I pledge my life to the one with the servant's towel around his waist. I pledge my fealty and my loyalty to the one who drained every drop of blood. I'm going to partake of his memorial meal today. I'm going to celebrate with you and remember with you who have joined me in pledging allegiance to him, his act of supreme sacrifice. Today when we take the bread, when we take the cup, we're remembering that He is the true King. That sacrifice didn't enable His kingship, Brother Tom. No, no. Don't make a mistake. He was King long before Calvary. Long before they took the nail and they, they nailed that placard above His head and mocking Sheila and they said, King of the Jews and they meant to mock Him. They didn't understand that long before that He was the King of the universe. Calvary didn't make Him King but it allowed me to be his subject. Calvary didn't make him royal, but it just allowed us to be a royal priesthood. Calvary didn't make him the authority, but it just allowed us to participate in his authority. Calvary didn't make him Lord, but it did allow me to be a servant. I'm so thankful. Would you stand with me today? Calvary enabled us to be part of the real king's kingdom. His lordship of the universe didn't begin when they proclaimed it in mocking his lordship was from eternity. But you and I became part of his kingdom because of Calvary. When the first drop of blood began to drip from the feet that had walked on water, it was not his kingship that was secured. It was my citizenship. It was not his lordship that was won that day. It was my sonship. He didn't become a king that day. The magi had it right. He was born a king. But I wasn't born a subject, Jim. I was born in rebellion. I was shaping in iniquity. And it wasn't long till I followed those tracks that were long laid from Adam until now that led away from his sovereignty. And I became a rebel through my own choice. 
and I became part of the kingdom of darkness. But this word tells me that at Calvary, there was a transaction and I had the privilege of being translated from the kingdom of darkness into the kingship of God's own dear son. Caesar's not going to save you. I don't care if President Biden is your best friend. I don't care if Miss Harris came over to your house for Thanksgiving and, 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 and God helped them in all that they're trying to do that, that is right and good. I, I'm praying for them. I'm not railing against them. But Caesar's not going to save you. Herod's not going to save you. You can know the pastor of the biggest church in town. You can shake his hand. You can, you can say, I know the guy who contributed to this great, beautiful building. You, you can know me. God help you if I'm the best person you know. But Herod ain't going to save you. It's one king. One name. One Lord and Father of all who is above all and through all and in you all. Jay, his name. He used to be known as Yahweh today. We call him Yeshua. Salvation. His name is Jesus. On that day, a doorway is thrown open for me to be a son. I'm going to take it. When I drink today, it's not only the fruit of the vine that goes into my body. It's a pledge of loyalty to the true king. When I take and eat today, it's not only the bread of the field that enters my mouth. It represents the body of the true king and the kingdom that he's made me a part of. I look back at his sacrifice, but I look forward to his return. My king doesn't wear a crown of metal. Silver and gold are not precious enough to enthrone his brow. He wore the thorn crown to bring the blood down that would offer me a pathway to covenant with him. Sonship, adoption, I'm now part of his family. I am now loyal because he showed himself loyal. I am so thankful, so thankful to serve this King, this true King, Jesus. I look forward to the day when you and I will bow before Him with the whole world. But friend, won't you and I acknowledge Him now so that we can bow on that day with joy and not trepidation, cast our crowns at His feet, and crown Him with many crowns, worship him forever as the Lord that he is. Hope you've been blessed today by contemplating the royalty of this Jesus, this precious Jesus, the true King. Let's honor him today.